Okay, so we're going to jump back into our series that we've been in called Jesus Is. Um, if you're relatively new with us, we've been going through a uh, we go through the Gospel of John. Um, this is our 20th week in the Gospel of John, and we're going through this series. We called it Jesus Is because we want to learn as much as we can um, about who Jesus is, about what He's like, about what that means for us. And frankly, the Gospel of John is this beautiful. <laughs> this beautiful letter, future preacher, uh, the Gospel of John is this beautiful letter penned by, um, by Jesus, basically the closest friend, this beautiful gospel truth, this information about who Jesus is and what he's done, we can go into that as a, as a community. So, we're going to jump back in this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 6 today, John chapter 6, um, before I jump in though, uh, I want to share something with you. Usually kind of towards the beginning of the year, people do New Year's resolutions and all that kind of stuff. This is about the time when people fail at their New Year's resolutions, right here in the middle of February, about six weeks in. Um, but the reason I bring that up isn't to like get you to make any resolutions. It really is to talk to you about, uh, to talk to you about the idea of a regret. Um, anybody have regrets? Like legitimately? Think in your brain. Is there things in your life that you regret? Um, I used to consistently be the kind of person that would respond to you and even think like, you know what, I don't have regrets in my life because, let me say this, I don't have regrets in my life because the choices that I've made in my life, for better or for worse, have shaped me into the person that I am. So therefore, I don't have regrets because I'm on this trajectory and I feel like God's with me and whatever. But like, I used to genuinely think that. Like, I wouldn't even give my mind any room to think about regret in any way, shape, or form. Um, and yeah, you know, that's true. The decisions that we make, they do shape us. They do kind of direct us. They do form us into the people we are. That's totally true. But I recognized that for me, I was dodging the question. Like, I actually didn't want to take my mind there, so I would come up with this excuse of why I don't need to think about past decisions that were regretful. And uh, it's funny because I've historically viewed regret in terms of things that I shouldn't have done. Make sense? Like things I should not have done. And the older that I get, I recognize that actually like I do have regrets in my life. Like I've, I've actually given my mind over to thinking about this and I do, I do have regrets. But there's not so much associated with the shouldn'ts, like the things I shouldn't have done. I find myself regretting things I should have done, but I didn't do. You tracking with me? Um, when I was a kid growing up, I really enjoyed playing sports. Up until like, junior high, I was always the tallest kid in my class, and I had like, this advantage when it came to athletics. And I loved playing sports. My two favorite sports by far were basketball and baseball. And I remember when I was 10 years old, my dad came to me and he said, hey, Little League is taking sign-ups. Do you want me to sign you up for Little League? And I used to play catch with my dad. Like we, my dad was, played baseball growing up and stuff, and he really enjoyed it. And I remember, like, I loved baseball. Like, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a huge kind of, uh, as a 10-year-old boy, it was a, like a passion for me, you know? And I remember he, so he asked me, hey, you want to play Little League? And I remember I was like, no. And it's funny, because, like, why on earth would a 10-year-old boy who loves to play baseball with his friends, he's decent at it, had a decent arm, you know, like why on earth 
would a 10-year-old boy who loves baseball say no to playing baseball? Any ideas? The answer was fear. The answer was fear. You see, because I knew that some of the other boys that had been playing, they'd been playing for a couple years. Some of them started as early as like T-ball. So in my 10-year-old brain, I'm thinking, these guys have an advantage. I'm at a disadvantage. Like, I have, they're, they're way ahead. I've missed the, like, the, the train has left the station for me at 10. That's crazy. The truth is I would have been just fine. I'd have been totally fine. I was afraid to fail. That was my fear. And it kept me from playing Little League Baseball. And you might be thinking like, hey, that's, that's kind of a silly thing, you know, but I don't know about you. I've made some awful choices in my life. I've made some awful choices with some equally awful consequences to those choices. And it might sound silly, but when I, when I think about my life genuinely, I think the biggest regret I have is not playing Little League Baseball. And I know that sounds silly. I know it does. But like, I don't know what it felt like to put the uniform on. Do you know what I mean? Like, I never knew the feeling of like stepping into the batter's box and like digging your cleats in and like staring down the pitcher, you know? Like, and I loved baseball. I never, I never got to experience hitting my first home run. And I know that sounds silly, but I regret it. I wish I would have made a different choice. And I can't now. I can't go back to being 10 years old and sign up for Little League Baseball. If I sign up for Little League Baseball now, it'd be really weird. All the parents would be like, get this creep out of here. <laughs> Guys, the reason I tell you that story is because I want you to know that like fear, fear is a very, very powerful thing because what you fear, hear me say this, what you fear actually controls you. It influences you way more than you think it does. And I would argue it influences you more than you're even aware of. In my case, right, I was afraid of failure, kept me from playing something I absolutely, kept me from, from doing something I absolutely loved, playing baseball with my friends. So today we're going to actually talk about fear. We're going to dive into this a little bit, okay? But before we do, I want you to start getting your kind of wheels turning in your brain and really starting to kind of assess you. And I want to ask you a question. What is it that you are afraid of? Guaranteed there's things in your life that you're afraid of that you're probably not aware of. But I want for you in this moment now to start to consider, stay with me, I want you to start to consider what it is that you're afraid of. Okay? Let me pray for us and we'll jump into the scriptures. Holy Spirit, uh, I ask you now to enlighten us. I pray that we would not be a distracted people this morning. I pray that we would be an engaged people. Um, Help us to recognize that you really are with us in this moment, that you are leading us as a church family. You're guiding us for your good purposes in our life. To glorify you, yes, absolutely, to bring your your name glory, God, but also to transform us into your likeness. So I pray that this morning you would really uh, do a work in us that would result um, in us being less afraid. So help us to turn our eyes to you, Jesus. If I say anything that gets in the way of what you want to accomplish, I pray that people wouldn't hear it. 
Um, we, want, we want what you have for us, God. We love you. We look to you now. In your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, so John chapter six, hopefully you found it there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have words on the screen here for you. I'm in the ESV translation this morning. That's the English Standard Version. Uh, So I'm gonna read this so you can follow along. Here we go. John chapter six, I'm gonna start in verse 16. I'm gonna go through verse 21. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples, the his is Jesus, so the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, They went down to the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Okay, a little quick trivia. I got to spend time in Capernaum about a month ago when I was in Israel. It was amazing. Jesus lived there for three years. It was basically like his home base. So they're on one end of this sea, right? And they're going to take a boat, probably about seven or eight miles in distance. They're going to take that boat across the sea to Capernaum, Jesus' home base where he lived, basically. Make sense? So that's what's happening here, okay? Um, I meant to bring you a picture of a boat uh, that they found there. I actually got to see it in person and what it looks like, and I totally forgot. So imagine. <laughs> imagine the, the photo of the boat. Either way, uh, they jump in the boat. They're heading across the sea to Capernaum. Uh, and it says, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Verse 18, the sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, okay, so they're throwing three to four miles, this would have put them right in the center of the Sea of Galilee, right in the middle, okay? Probably the most dangerous spot. When they had rowed three to four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 21 Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right. So this morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to talk about two things. You can write these down. The first is this. We're going to talk about the holiness of Jesus that we see here, and we're going to talk about his conquering power. So the holiness of Jesus and his conquering power. Let's jump in. Okay, the holiness of Jesus. Now, you've heard us talk about holiness before, but I want to put this in front of you again, what it actually means to be holy. Okay, to be holy is to be set apart. It basically means to be completely pure, completely righteous. Basically, when it says that God is holy, what it's saying is God's in a league of his own. Okay, there's nobody like him. Like we all, uh, uh, if if you're a millennial, raise your hand. That means you're like under 36 or 37 or something. Uh, a lot of us in the room, okay? I feel like I don't want to be lumped into the millennial category. I had the internet like, like after growing up, but either way, there's something about millennials is we, we tend to just have this, we're unique, the unique snowflake thing, okay? We're unique. Um, what we see here about this idea of holy is like take that but times it by a, a billion and have it actually be true. Like God is completely unique. There's nobody like him. He's in a league of his own. There, no one even comes close. That's this idea of holiness. Are you tracking with me? You've heard me say this before, but I need you to see this. God is holy, okay? And what we see here in the person of Jesus is that God, instead of expressing his holiness in different ways, in and through Jesus, he expresses his holiness as a man, as a person, okay? So I want you to picture this story that we just read. I want you to picture it in your mind. Use your imagination, okay? Picture the scene. It's stormy. You have the lake. 
You have the Sea of Galilee, and, and the sea is rough, okay? The water's really choppy. The winds are really strong. The waves are really big, okay? So much so that, like, trained fishermen are stuck in the middle of it. They can't get out. You tracking with me? Yeah, stay with me. Are you with me? I can't tell. Great, okay, so you're picturing the scene. So you have this crazy, gnarly storm, and then you have Jesus. He walks out to them on the water, Many of you have heard this story before, but I, I don't want to get past the reality here. Like, just what would you do if you saw a dude walking on water? What would you do if you saw a dude walking on water in the middle of a crazy storm? I want you to notice something pretty crazy in these verses, guys. If you read along, when does it say that the disciples became frightened? Verse 19 says that when they saw Jesus walking to them on the water, they became frightened. So listen, it doesn't say anywhere that they were frightened by the storm. Like, listen, for sure they're concerned, (laughs) okay? For sure they're concerned, like they're trying to row to the other side, the storm's preventing them, okay? They're, They're exuding a lot of energy trying to make this happen. We actually know from the other gospel accounts, like this story is actually accounted in other gospels, like, they, they tell this story in other Gospels. Um, we know from other Gospel accounts that Jesus saw them struggling out on the water before he comes to them. So he knows they're struggling, right? He knows they're struggling. So, yes, they are concerned. Absolutely, they're concerned. They're probably a little worried, okay? The storm is raging around them. But listen to me. They aren't afraid. They aren't frightened until Jesus shows up. So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the disciples were more afraid of Jesus and his holiness than they were of the storm. They're more afraid of Jesus and his holiness than they were of that crazy storm. These disciples, they recognize something they recognize that they are in the presence of something different, of someone different, someone holy. And it terrifies them. Then what do we see Jesus do? Let's look at it. After that, Jesus speaks to them. Look back at verse 20 here. Verse 20 says this, but he, Jesus, said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Um, that communicates kind of the uh, it communicates a little bit of what Jesus was trying to say there, but it misses something. That's not the most accurate translation from the original Greek to English. Okay, let me. Read. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know a little bit enough to kind of enough to kind of hang. Um, in the original Greek, it says this. It has this phrase: "Ego, emi." And what it like if it's translated literally, this is what it says: "Don't be afraid, I am." Some of you, you know where I'm going with this. I'm going to read you uh, this quote from this pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. He, 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 he says this, commenting on this passage. I love this. He says this. Now, there was another time in which somebody heard a terrifying presence say, I am. Moses, before the burning bush, heard God say, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I will reveal my name to you. It's Yahweh, which literally means I am. What does I am mean? Why would God call himself I am? 
This is what Keller says. Because he's saying, I'm not like anything else you've ever seen. I am. I have no beginning and I have no ending. There is no I was about me and there is no I will be about me. I am. I can't change because I'm perfect. I need nothing. I'm dependent on nothing. I am the unique God. I am self-sufficient. I am the Holy One. So what we see here is Jesus, he's telling his disciples that he, stay with me, he's telling his disciples that he is the Holy God of the universe. A man says that, okay? What I love about it too is he doesn't just use his words, he uses his actions. He walks on the water to them. He demonstrates his power. And it says the disciples are frightened, okay? They're freaked out because they're more afraid of Jesus than they are of the storm. Now, my friends, that is the, that is the proper response that a person can have to Jesus. The disciples are frightened because they're more afraid of Jesus than the storm. So let me say this. If the holiness of Jesus doesn't startle you, even just a little bit, you're not seeing him clearly for who he is. He's gracious, he's kind, he's present, he's merciful, absolutely, but he's holy. And if his holiness doesn't cause you to pause for just a second at something utterly different than you, then something or someone has distorted your view of Jesus. He's holy. All right, let's move on to Jesus's power. Okay, my second point here, his conquering power. Um, what I'm gonna do really quickly, just to kind of give you some context, I'm gonna try to like break down the two ways here that Jesus demonstrates his power over storms. All right, so in this story, right, in John 6, any of you guys that have been familiar reading the Bible, you know this is not the only story of Jesus um, and his disciples in the middle of a storm. This is not the only, the only story, the only example of that, okay? In Mark chapter four and in Matthew chapter eight, they both tell a, a story of a different storm. This will be familiar for many of you. But it's a story, you have Jesus and his disciples, they're on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, similar experience, right? And Jesus falls asleep on the boat and then the storm rolls in and it's crazy. The, the disciples, many of whom are professional fishermen on this lake, are afraid they're gonna die. It's that bad. They're freaking out. So they wake up Jesus like, Jesus, we're gonna die. What do we do? How are you sleeping? And what Jesus does is he calms the storm with his words. He tells it to stop and it does. And if, you're, if you remember the... Uh, that, that, that story, you know that there's a similarity to the story we read in John 6 today and that they responded to him calming the storm and it says they were terrified. And they, they say something to the effect of like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him and they're freaked out, okay? <clears throat> um, similar scene, but Jesus tells the storm to stop as I was thinking and praying um, this morning and, and this week about this message, it just like it hits me like a ton of bricks that there are so many of us in our church who are experiencing circumstances in your life that are stormy. 
and you have a strong desire that Jesus would tell them to stop. Um, I remember before we were gathering in this space, before we kind of publicly launched as a church, we were gathering um, here in Temecula at night in another church's like youth room. It was tiny. It was like this big. <laughs> Some of you guys were there. It was a sweet time of us kind of forming as a church. And um, one of the nights there, I'm about to get up to preach. I think we were in Galatians or something. I was taking the church through Galatians. I get up and I have to wear, I don't have to, but I wear this, this face mic, you know, this like Britney Spears thing. And I, the reason I wear it isn't to look cool. <laughs> if you didn't know, I do it so that I can use my hands basically. But either way, I put the, the wire down the back of my shirt. So it's not like hanging and getting caught, right? So I'm, I'm in the process of doing that. I'm going to preach in like two minutes. I put the wire down my shirt and I'm trying to do it. And I feel this gnarly pop in my shoulder. And like, no joke, guys, my shoulder just goes, and it like goes completely like, I can't move it. It hurts so bad. I think I pinched something. Many of you guys are in health. I don't know, Robbie, did I pinch something? I don't know. But like something happened and it hurt. It hurt like bad enough to where, it hurt bad enough to where I was like, this is really painful. Like where I'm kind of wincing a little bit. And even worse than that, it's not so much the pain is that I can't move my shoulder more than like this. So like, I definitely can't move it parallel. I definitely can't like change my notes. Like I'm in, I'm in trouble. And I have to preach in two minutes. So I'm kind of like, oh my, like, what am I going to do? It's hurting really bad. My brother was leading worship that evening and he's literally walking past me to go take his seat. I'm like, Mark, get over here. <laughs> I'm like, I need you to pray for my shoulder like right now. I really hurt it. It's, I'm in trouble. So he lays his hand on my shoulder and just simple prayer. God, please heal Tom's shoulder. It's hurting helping to preach to us right now, da, da, da. And I'm not exaggerating. I can feel blood rush to my shoulder. And in the matter of like 15, 20 seconds, it, it was crazy. Like the pain's gone and I have full mobility of my shoulder. Now you might be skeptical, like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever, dude. I'm just telling you what I experienced. It was supernatural. I went from ex- like not excruciating pain, but like enough pain to where I'm like, I can't even move. And in 10 seconds, I'm totally good and I can feel all this blood rushing to my shoulder when he was praying for it. It was amazing. It was like this, God told the storm to stop. And in that moment, in that moment, it submitted. It was amazing. It was was glorious. It was so cool. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes he tells the storm to stop. And it does. And it's incredible. He exercises his power that way sometimes. It was funny, I was talking to Robbie this morning um, about this idea. I, I pulled, I've pulled my back out before. He pulled his back out earlier this week. The, the first time I ever pulled my back out, it was funny enough, it was on my 30th birthday. Um, you get older and things happen, right? I'm not exaggerating. I was laying in bed. I, had to, I was laid up in bed for six days. Like, and, and, and I couldn't move. It's like if you've ever pulled your back out, you know that if you move just the slightest way, shooting pains, like where you're like, ah! It's like it's the closest thing men will ever get to labor pains. It's terrible. <clears throat> and I remember, I, like, I just prayed all, I was laying in bed for like six days and just like, God, please take this away. Please take this away. I had so much work to do in the church. It was in San Diego. It was the second church plant. And there was so much to do. And I was like, the, the timing's terrible. This is, this is the worst timing ever 
Dozens of people were praying for me in the church. Like two or three days in, I had all the pastors from all the churches come into my bedroom, lay their hands on me and pray. And do you know what happened? I stayed in bed for six days and writhing in pain. God didn't tell the storm to stop. Sometimes he does that and it's amazing. Other times he doesn't, guys. Sometimes Jesus demonstrates his power over the storms of our lives by telling them to stop, by taking the pain away, by healing the sick, by changing the circumstances. But that's not what happens here in John chapter 6. I want you to notice something. He doesn't tell the storm to stop. Um, How many of you guys have heard the phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can handle? Have you heard that? That's like really half-hearted. I don't be able to see. Like, okay, so it's enough to worry. I don't need to spend too much time on it. You've heard that. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about that being shared is I think people genuinely have a desire to care for someone in the midst of their storm. And they're trying to bring comfort and they're trying to bring relief. And they're trying to, be, they're trying to, they're trying to love another person. So that part of it I really appreciate. But I have to be honest, I don't believe it's true because it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. The Bible gives us dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of situations that are completely impossible without God. So listen, if it's impossible unless God intervenes, that means it's more than you can handle. It's more than I can handle, okay? Those disciples that we read about here in John chapter 6, they're stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, okay? They cannot get across because of the storm. They can't row fast enough. They can't row hard enough. The storm is more than they can handle, okay? And get this. Remember how I shared with you that that, that, um, different stories are shared in different gospel accounts earlier? This same story is in Mark chapter 6. Okay, it tells the exact same story. And the story in Mark chapter 6 of the, same, of the same event, it includes a detail that John chapter 6 doesn't. Are you tracking with me? Okay, it shares a detail that John chapter 6 does not. And that detail is that Jesus actually sends these disciples into the storm. He actually does give them more than they can handle. But the thing I love about Jesus is he intervenes. He intervenes, and he intervenes for an incredible purpose. Okay, you have to see this. Sometimes he tells the storm to stop. Other times he doesn't. But what he does do is he does walk on top of it. He walks on top of it. And in in doing so, he's showing us something profound He's showing us that the storm is not more powerful than he is, even if he doesn't tell it to stop. The storm is not more powerful than he is because he is sovereign, even over the storm. Okay, the word sovereign, what it basically means is that he reigns over everything. Are you tracking with me? Jesus reigns over everything. He's sovereign, okay? And something happens here in John chapter six about how Jesus handles the storm. And listen to me, it's even more powerful than if he were to tell it to stop. And you might be thinking like, 
what could, be more, what could be a bigger kind of display of someone's power than telling the storm to stop? Like, what's bigger than that? What's better than that? What's more powerful than that? Let me show you. And hear me say this. This absolutely changed my life. When I saw this about the character of God, it transformed my life. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, I want you to see three things. Jesus reveals three things to his disciples here in John chapter six. The first one, we've talked about it, his holiness. Okay, he, he reveals his holiness to them, right? He walks on the water. He's sovereign over the storm in doing so. And when they experience that, when they see his holiness, they're terrified. He's so different than them, right? The second thing he shows them, hear me say this, is his compassion. He comes to them on the water. He goes to them in the middle of the storm. This is important. Um, Listen, Jesus doesn't minimize the storm that they're in. Like he, he doesn't say, you know, hey, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. He doesn't say, you know, it's okay, the storm's gonna be over soon. He doesn't minimize their storm. And listen to me, he doesn't minimize your storm either. He doesn't respond with like, um, it's only cancer. He doesn't respond with that. He doesn't say like, it's only financial struggle or, 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 or marriage struggle or parenting struggle or singleness or f- whatever. He doesn't do that. He does not minimize the storms of life. What he does is he walks on top of them. He comes to the disciples in the middle of the storm and he shows them his holiness and he demonstrates his compassionate heart because he cares. And they begin to fear him more than they fear the storm. And look what it says in verse 21. They were glad to take him into the boat. So do you see the third thing? Can you see it yet? Do you see the third thing that Jesus reveals here? The thing that's more powerful than even stopping the storm. Jesus conquers this storm, not by stopping it, but by giving his disciples something greater to fear. The effects of the storm are still present. The wind is still raging. The waves are still crashing. The, storm, the effects of the storm are still present. But the power over the disciples, the storm's power over the disciples is gone. Why? Because there's something more powerful. There's something they fear more than the storm. There's something they are more in awe of than the storm, and his name's Jesus. The sovereign Lord of all things, the God of the universe, the Holy One. He's Lord even of the storm. And this Holy One has compassion for them and he cares for them and he comes to be with them and he comes to rescue them because they can't rescue themselves clearly. They can't do it on their own. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about this. Like, if all you ever do is remove the storms from your life, if all you ever do is get rid of the storms when they come, you've done nothing to actually conquer their power you're still afraid of them. Does that make sense? 
You've done nothing to eliminate the fear that they can cause you. And therefore, the storm still reigns over your life. And you're, you're, you're moving on from one moment of fear to the next. When's it coming? Oh my God, when's the storm coming? It's coming when it gets here. Jesus, you've got to take it away now. I, that fear still controls you. And it still has power over you. But hear me say this. Jesus has power to conquer the storms of life either by telling them to stop, they bow at his words. He has power to conquer the storms of life either by telling them to stop or by something even more powerful than that. Transferring the fear away from the storm and over to him. The Bible talks about this idea of the fear of the Lord all over it. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That sounds like, oh God, the fear of the Lord. Aren't we supposed to like, doesn't perfect love cast out all fear? And like, what is that? How does that relate to me and God? Like, it's tough because the word fear there that we translate, you know, fear of the Lord, it involves fear. It absolutely does because God's holy. Like, whoa, I'm a sinner. He's holy. <laughs> so it involves fear, but it's like, it's more than that. It's a deeper thing. And it's kind of a shame because there's beauty here that I think, at least in our Western minds, we go fear, we associate it with bad. But again, I want you to think of the effects that fear has on you. How does fear affect you? Remember, what you fear essentially controls you. It influences you. It influences your decision. Like not playing Little League Baseball, in my case, because of fear or not being truly known by other people not revealing what's going on in your heart and your life I'll stay at a distance they can know what I do for a living they can know the kind of food I like they can know what I like to do on the weekends with my family but I'm not going to be fully known because I'm afraid you can back off and you can withdraw You can live a life that God hasn't designed for you to live. How about this one? You cannot ask for help when you need it. Man, that one kills me. Especially when it's people I love. And I'm like, why didn't you ask for help? We would have, I'd speak for dozens of people that would have just dropped everything to help you. Um, It was cool. Uh, Herrick told me about how many of the people in, in the gospel community, like they, their backyard flooded this week, like pretty gnarly. And dude, the gospel, his gospel community just rallied. Sandbags, getting rid of all this stuff. It's beautiful. How often do we actually share the needs? We need help. If you're anything like me, you do it because you're afraid. Sometimes it's about what you think of yourself. I'm not as self-reliant as I thought I was, and I don't want to come to grips with that. I'm actually a dependent person. That's not weakness. That's part of being human. But imagine, friends, imagine what it would be like if God was the influencer of our decisions. Like the God of the universe, the Holy One, Jesus, not the false gods that we give that power to. Um, You probably heard this phrase, you know, like, he or she's a God-fearing man or woman. Like God-fearing, it's this idea. The Bible describes someone who's God-fearing as someone that God influences their decisions. And here's the thing. 
let this sink in. This is important. Fearing God results in no longer fearing lesser things. Fearing God results in no longer fearing lesser things. I love this famous quote by this guy, James Gardner. He says, I fear God and therefore have none else to fear. Are you seeing this picture of how when the fear of the Lord is present in your life, the other things have no power, the storms in your life, their power is hugely diminished. I'll call the band up, I'll close with this, I'm almost done. You guys still with me? Yes? No? Okay. So when we read this story, um, can you guys see the parallels? Can you see the parallels between this story and the story of every single Christian who's ever lived? It's my story. I hope it's yours. I know many of you in in the room, this is your story too. But can you see the parallels here, right? We're the ones stuck in the middle of the sea, tossed and turned by the consequences of sin and pain and brokenness. And the only way to get to the other side isn't to row harder or stronger or better. No, it's to see Jesus. It's to see Jesus sovereign over the storm, walking out to us in the middle of that mess and revealing to us that we cannot do it on our own. We actually need the one with the power, the Holy One, to rescue us. And I love it. Those who are glad to take him into the boat, right? Those who see him for who he is, see their situation for what it is, and they're like, yeah, I'm glad, come into the boat. You have control, you be the captain. Like, those who are glad to take him into the boat, those who who surrender control over to him, those who fear him, he takes them to the other side. So, same question I started with this morning. What are you afraid of? Fear will rob you, man. It will rob you of the life that God has for you. It will rob you of being able to enjoy him and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his provision and his blessing. What are you afraid of? Maybe the better question is, what are you afraid of more than Jesus? No, it's great. You can play, girl. I love it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pause this for a second. The reason they play, I'll talk more about this in a couple months, but this is not to control you emotionally, to like, oh, let's use music as a tool to manipulate people emotionally. There's all these, all these stories um, in the Old Testament about the people of God praising God. And actually, you can use music as a tool to create an environment where his praise is unobstructed. Okay. So they want to serve us in that. It's not to manipulate you, okay? But stay with me again. Back to the question. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of more than you're afraid of Jesus? Healthy fear. And maybe you're kind of like me, the 10-year-old me, right? Your fear is causing you to make regretful decisions. Maybe things you're not proud of. Maybe not so much choosing, like making choices that you shouldn't do, but maybe so much like 
doing things that you, you know you should do, but you don't? You tracking with me? Okay. So listen, if that's you, if, if, if you recognize that your fears are causing you to make regretful decisions, God has compassion and grace for you. You need to hear that. Compassion and grace. Like he died for every single regretful decision that you've made. Every single one of them. Pay the debt. It's done. It's taken care of. Compassion and grace is yours in Jesus. Okay? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you are the person that you're in the middle of a storm. This season of your life, you're in the middle of a storm. And it's not the kind of storm that Jesus is stopping. If that's you, listen to me. You need to understand something, that Jesus doesn't minimize your storm. He doesn't minimize your storm. And listen, he's not absent either. He's working. Okay, he's pursuing you. He comes to you on the water in the middle of the storm, and he's showing you how holy he is, how sovereign he is, Because listen, he knows that the fear of God, if it's in you, if the fear of God is in you, the fear of the storm can't be. And if that happens, dude, you're free. You're absolutely free. You guys know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. What does it say? It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. I'll fear no evil because you're with me. The presence is there. The effects are there, okay? Do you want to know, this is huge, do you want to know how God conquers evil? How he completely destroys it, how he conquers it. Step one, remove its power, okay? Step two, remove it completely. At the cross, Jesus accomplished it. He said it's finished. He's in the process right now of filtering out all evil. How's he going to do it? Remove its power. Fear has no hold on you. The, the, the storms, they don't have power over you anymore. You're not afraid of them. Step one, remove its power. Step two, get rid of it completely. A day is coming with no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. Jesus conquers evil. We stand if you're able? I'm gonna pray for us. I'm going to listen for just a bit and see how God wants to lead us right now. What time is it? Okay, we got like 10 minutes. Um, I'm going to pray, listen for just a bit, see what God wants to do. We know we're going to praise him. We know communion's available for Christians in the back. We can remember and celebrate his body and his blood. But I think there's more. I think that God has specific ministry he wants to do too. Because I think there's, I think there's people. That, literally, I think there's people in the room where you're being robbed of the life that God has for you because you're living in fear, and not fear of the Lord, not healthy fear, not in awe and reverence of the Holy One who loves you and gave Himself for you that you can actually trust, but fear of things that actually want to harm you, because you're giving them more power. You see that they have more power than Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray for us collectively, and then we'll see what happens. The band's going to lead us, but. Yeah, let me pray.
God, thank you that you hear my prayers and I don't want anybody in this room to be afraid. I don't want them to be afraid of things. That I, want, I don't want them to give power to things that aren't more powerful than you. I do it in my life all the time. <laughs> Last night, my, the batteries were dying in like our fire alarms and it scared me because they were making these chirping noises and I was like, oh God, someone's trying to break in the house. And like, I, fear causes me to panic and it causes me to like, but I pray that you would help us to see that we genuinely, we have nothing to fear. You are more powerful than any storm in life that we could ever face and you're holy, and you're compassionate. You come to us. You meet us in the middle of the storm. Sometimes you tell the storm to stop. Sometimes you don't. But either way, you walk on top of it. And you are in the process of doing something more powerful than telling it to stop. You are removing the power that the storms in life have over us. You're removing the power of evil. And there'll be a day when you remove it completely, and that brings us hope and comfort. So my prayer for each of us, God, is that you would give us faith to trust you, who you are, what you've done, what that means for us. Help, our, help our, the eyes of our, of our heart to like, kind of fixate on the cross and that it really is you declaring your power. It's you declaring your wisdom over evil, that you can defeat it and then remove it and that you're, you're, you're in the process of doing that, not just for the planet, but for our souls and for our personal life because you love us. I pray faith over this room and the removal of fear in the name of Jesus. In your holy name, Jesus, amen.